Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. Hi, Teresa. How are you? Hello. I'm great. How are you? I am doing okay. It is Monday. (laughs) This is author Elaine Audrey Becker. We're getting together to talk about her novel, Forestborn. It's a fantasy story about human frailty and self-doubt and the danger of othering. It's told through a magical lens. And we're going to begin by talking about why Elaine made her main character a shapeshifter. I do think part of it is likely rooted in the steep love of wildlife and animals, which I have had, I mean, ever since I can remember. And so the idea of getting to write characters who can not only do these cool things by changing their human attributes to mimic someone else, but also turn into animals, particularly animals that I find really cool and would love to turn into myself. I found that such a cool way to tell the story and getting to write certain passages of the book through those animals lens, you know, trying to write those sections of the narrative in ways that hopefully reflect the way those animals actually navigate the world in real life. Yeah. You know? Yes. I love, there were sections where she's, um, I think we can say she's a mouse. She can be a little field mouse Mm -hmm. and you reference the fact that the eyesight's not great, but she can feel the way you describe where things are in the room is really, it's really clever. Thank you. Yeah. Those, uh, thank you so much. Those parts of the book were challenging to write, I remember, because I was trying to take a step back from relying on visual descriptors and instead try to think, okay, what is she, what is she hearing? What is she feeling through vibrations in the ground or the air? And that was, that was challenging, but it kept it interesting, (laughs) which is also good. I'm really glad you brought up nature and that you love nature because I just kept writing down as I was listening, stunning description, (laughs) fantastic. Like I feel transported to a river or to a mountain or to a, yay. (laughs) Yeah. It's very clear that you have an appreciation or a love of the natural world. Yeah. Yeah. Which is totally authentic to my own experience. And I'm, I'm glad it sounds like it's, it's coming through that way on the page. I mean, literally a week or two ago, I was having a real day as we all have. And in the afternoon, my brain just went, I need a forest. Yeah. And I hopped in the car and I went to one because the snow was just starting to melt. I could see the ground for the first time in months. And there were some, finally, I could see some green on the ground and beginning to be on the trees. And it was great. It was what I needed. So I love being able to hopefully capture that deep appreciation that I have in my own life 
in uh, in a fantasy world and on the page. Yeah. So the world of Forest Born is strictly in terms of the topography and the flora and fauna. It was inspired by the North American continent and specifically North American wilderness. The uh, Western Vale, which is the magical wilderness for people listening, that was very much inspired by experiences that I had in the Rocky Mountains. I was specifically drawing on the things that I saw and the things that I experienced and the way that it made me feel as well. I could tell that, you know, you've taken the natural world and just turned the volume up on it, mm-hmm. right? It still feels like our natural world and the world that I experience in the Rocky Mountain National Park. Yeah. But you've just kind of, you've turned the volume up on it. And one of the ways you've done that is through the animals. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to stop. I paused the audiobook and started writing down <laughs> widow bats, changeling wolves, mm-hmm. the marrow sheep are it has to do with the marrow of bones. They grind bones. They're fairly dark. Kind of creepy. Yep. There's a creepy factor to all of these, even though they're, like I said, they're rooted in nature that I know, but you've kind of, you've played with their, um, their attributes in a way. Yeah. Can you tell me where some of that inspiration came from? I was trying to, for at least some of the animals like the changeling wolves, think of a power or an ability that would be beneficial to them in the real world and then make that a reality in in the book. Um, But then there were a couple animals that it was just something I thought would be fun um, with the marrow sheep, which were sort of magical takes on bighorn sheep. I just loved the idea of taking these herbivores and making them creepy (laughs) just because that felt different and exciting to me. Um, And also you got to create tension somewhere, right? (laughs) If you're writing this kind of quest. You create tension all over the place. I think your narrator had this really lovely tone and pace, but your characters go from, they just go from one sort of tense situation to another, to another. Mm -hmm. That's a good place to pause and listen to that pace and tension. You're going to hear a scene from chapter one, when the main character, Rora, is working as a spy for the king, and she's tracking cases of a deadly disease in the kingdom. The scene takes place in a forest, so you can hear some of that vivid description. You'll also hear the skill of the narrator, who Audiophile Magazine says strikes just the right tone as Rora, introspective but self-assured. This is from Forest Born. Written by Elaine Audrey Becker. Read by Sophia Zeverdaki. Produced for Tortine by Macmillan Audio. I find her deep in the old forest, face down in the dirt. Sharp pain needles my palms, where I've balled my fist so tight, the nails have carved half-moon marks into the skin. Snaking across the twig-strewn ground, gnarled roots press against my boots, like a warning, as I roll the young woman onto her back. Best to be sure. No. She is certainly dead. Cold, stiff, and hungry like the rest. Even with forest debris masking much of her shirt, the threadbare cotton dips in unmistakable rivulets across her bony frame. I swallow my disappointment and push her eyelids shut, 
wanting to spare her kin the sight of those empty, pointless eyes. Sorry, I murmur, sitting back on my heels. I'm guessing he didn't deserve this. Around us, the trees lean inward and down with ominous uniformity, leaves and branches straining against their holds, drawn to the dead woman as if tethered by ropes. The sway, the humans call it. I ignore the prickling in my belly. They'll straighten out soon enough, when the magic leaves her body. With a final nod, I push to my feet and wend my way back to the forest's edge. It's a close wood, with broad oaks in summer bloom crowding the grassy floor, their leafy canopy admitting shafts of sunlight that glitter like crystal chandeliers. All in all, too peaceful a setting for someone driven to madness to die alone. I breathe it in deep to savour the scent while I can, grateful that, for whatever reason, these trees never seem drawn to the magic in my own blood. I've had enough of vengeful wilderness to last a lifetime. Well? Seraline asks, her knuckles nearly white where they clutch the hem of her shirt. I shake my head. Dead. Her shoulders sink. Though Seraline is sturdy as iron when she's in her aunt's tannery shaping leather into draft horses' yokes, Standing a determined two paces behind the tree line now, she seems shakable as snow. Come on, I say, looking to the stony town just across the open fields. You're going to be late. I don't ask if she plans to examine the body for herself. Seraline may have insisted on coming as a show of support, but our friendship has many limits. Her discomfort with the dead and dying the least of them. After a brief hesitation, Seraline falls into step at my side, sweeping her seeing stick across the ground in broad strokes. Poor thing. I mumble my assent, my jaw clenched tight. This time of year, the late summer air hangs heavy even in the early morning, enough that the back of my neck is already slick with sweat. The barley fields remain mercifully empty, as we pick our way through the dusty rows, but still I plough forward with my head down and shoulders bent, half from habit and half spurred by the hour. Seraline isn't the only one who's running behind. Rora's journey is about learning to sort of juggle the good and the bad, the light and the dark, um, you know, at the beginning of the book, we see her wrestling with quite a lot of negativity, whether it's feelings of low self-worth um, or this fear, this deep-seated fear that she'll never be enough or she won't be worthy of love or that she is useless or less than in some way. It was important to me to have her sort of emotional arc be about learning to still recognize and honor the events that led her to become the way that she is and acknowledge that those the effects of those kinds of things are not just going to magically disappear with the fact that you know you can grow and you can learn to hold those darker parts within you but still find ways to 
at the risk of sounding overly poetic, you know, move towards the light. I did not want her to be on this internal journey in which the end point is just everything is magically all better. You know, if she flipped a switch and now she's good to go. <laughs> that just didn't feel, it didn't feel true to life to me. So that is what I think is so compelling about this story is that you've put really true human frailty mm-hmm. in a magical setting and then you don't let the magical setting fix the human frailty. We still see totally the human frailty. Yeah cracking open and and she actually says something about balance I think I think that's such a great way that you just said that about lightness and darkness um, that there's power in balance to live not in the black or the white but the gray space in between Mm -hmm. yeah the gray space a concept that I remember thinking of and talking about with a friend years ago sat on someone's office floor (laughs) it's the end of the day you know we are just talking about all the all of the woes and the highs and lows from the day. And I have no idea why that came up, but for whatever reason, this concept of the gray space, we were just talking about it. And that's the way I articulated it in the moment. And it's something I've thought about myself for a really long time. So I had to put it in the book. <laughs> I love that she comes to that conclusion about herself. What makes this this part of the story feel complete is that she comes to this place of self-acceptance, which is something we're all Mm -hmm. striving to do, right? Like stop the voices that tell us we're not enough or we're, um, we're so hard on ourselves. Yeah. It's much easier said than done. The other thing that I thought was really big concept was you, you're explaining at one point, the magic, she's saying how, when you shape shift, you're sort of borrowing matter Mm -hmm. to change yourself. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, (laughs) that, what it reminded me of is Carl Sagan. He talked about star stuff. Mm -hmm. There was this Nova special when I was probably a teenager. And I remember watching and thinking like, oh, we're all made of the same stuff. Yeah. And there's something really huge and small and powerful about that all at once. And you've, you've woven that into this idea of, of shape-shifting. I wanted to create a system for shape-shifting that felt um, possible, but I remember having a long conversation with a friend of mine who's a doctor and very much into the scientific sphere. We did have a long conversation about these sort of theoretical concepts of these ideas of borrowing matter and returning it and everything being interconnected in the way that you're saying. And then at the same time, this idea of boundaries was all, always very much a part of it. You know, I think, I think anytime you're writing a book with magic, magic can't be limitless because if there's no boundaries to push up against, then it's too, it's too easy a catch-all. And so I, I had to put in these sorts of limitations, like the fact that they can't heal themselves, the shapeshifters in a permanent way, um, as I was creating this sort of grand idea of borrowing from the air and the earth around you yes hopefully it came together into a into a balanced portrait well it sort of is an echo of what you said earlier about appreciating and valuing nature yeah right so this idea that we are connected to nature yeah Mm -hmm. yeah I love that so literally right but then also there's a lot in this story about us and them 
Mm-hmm. You have a lot of tension building between the magical people and the non-magical people. Right. And it's leading to fear-based uh, aggression uh, against the magical people. Yeah. And so to me, that was also that idea that we're all made of the same stuff, you know, reverberates with this concept of like, yeah, we are all interconnected. Yeah. That's a really beautiful way of thinking about it. Um, and I love that. Yeah, I love that. The the othering narrative, like you say, is very much central to the story. Um, you know, I had some family history inspiration for that, some unfortunate real world and throughout human history, realistically, um, inspiration for that. Incorporate the ideas that you're talking about, you know, in terms of revealing once we get past those sort of that fear-based thinking and often irrational thinking, we are all more like uh, and connected than, than we think. There's a fear-based war that's happening between people that are actually have a lot in common, but don't see each other that way. Yeah. And of course, you know, it just echoes to me to World War II. And, you know, we're getting to a point um, in human history where we have to sort of keep telling that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you've done a version of that in this magical world. Yeah. And of course, in the real world, there are people who want us to stop telling that story. And so to me, that makes it all the more important that we continue doing so. Part of the inspiration for that was I have, you know, my own family history very much bound up in the World War II parallels, which, you know, will become obvious if you read the book. You know, I think taking it as far as I did definitely was rooted in that and stories that I've grown up hearing from not just a academic perspective, but also a very personal perspective. Mm. And then outside of that, I mean, there are multiple instances, unfortunately, in the real world today and historically, where we see the types of uh, extremes that this kind of othering, places to which it can go, which are very disturbing and you know, I wish there were fewer examples in the real world of the types of things I'm writing about existing. To me, it felt like this is an unfortunately timeless tendency that humans have, um, this idea of othering and the in-group, out-group sort of philosophy. And uh, it can be harmful on a personal level and then also quite dangerous if we don't push back against it. Yes. That's a great way to say it if we don't push back, if we don't have the awareness to push back even. Okay, so one of the things that I wrote down that I thought was fun was you say, for fortune's sake, or let the river take you. You have some expressions that happen a couple of times. And the first time I heard it, I, I was reminded of the good place mm-hmm. when she uses forking. Yep. <laughs> and I was like, oh, she's just being funny with the forking. But then when I really listened through the whole book, I realized... Every time you do this, you're kind of replacing where we would say God mm-hmm. with something out of nature. Yep, exactly that. Um, it is uh, that originated with a decision that I made early on, which is that I didn't want to incorporate religion into this world and its history, um, and particularly not real world religion. It didn't. It wouldn't make sense for them um, to have this concept of a deity in the world that I was creating. And then when I thought about that from a linguistic standpoint, then you have words that we say in real life, like damn, which is a fairly innocuous 
sort of swear, I guess, in our world. But yeah, the concept of damnation is, I, I believe, inextricable from the concept of, well, at least the Christian concept of God. Yeah, I think a lot of our, I think a lot of our swears, a lot of our curses are, and I hadn't really considered it that way, but they are connected to mm-hmm. um, a deity, a sense of heaven and hell and yeah. And that they don't have that, their version of that is again, intrinsically linked to nature. It is. Yeah. I needed to create an opportunity to have those, those beats and those exclamations that we use in real life, but I wanted them to be natural to the world that I was writing. And so to me, it made sense for them to have them swear by the river because the river that separates this continent, um, largely it separates the magical side from the non-magical side has become this thing that the human realms in particularly fear quite a bit. And so Mm -hmm. saying something like the river take you to the world that I was writing would be um, hopefully an effective swear or <laughs> effectively ill will, you know, a bit of thinking. Let's see. The other thing, the other note I have is there's a scene. Um, a lot of the scenes are outside, mm-hmm. but there's a particular scene. They're under the stars and she, Laura says that she loves the dark. Mm-hmm. And I think it's West that says, Oh, you love the stars or you have looking at stars. And she says, no, it's the velvety space in between. It was one of my favorite visuals that you wrote so I had to ask you where did that come from um well (laughs) that that specific moment in particular Rora I've always I've always associated her with this sort of just with night imagery the sort of darkness I derived her name Rora from the Aurora Borealis so that was always um intrinsic to her character but I liked the idea that given Rora's personality, she would be, she would feel less drawn to the sort of shiny, bright, loud things in life, but instead be more drawn to the beauty that she finds in the quietness, um, who are not shining the brightest, but you know, to her, they're beautiful. It struck me, you know, I think sometimes you're listening or you're reading to a book and there'll just be a moment where the author articulates something that for me, it just was like, oh, that was a really beautiful way to describe the night sky. I love that. Um, I'm just checking my notes. Mm -hmm. I'm going to sip my tea. So the name of the podcast is Desideratum, which is Latin for uh, the desire of things that are essential. And so the question I like to ask is for you, if someone asked you what you think is most essential, how would you answer? Oh, a nice, soft, easy question <laughs> to end with. Hmm. What do I think is essential? Can I give two answers? Of course. Okay. In terms of humans, I would say empathy, I think is most essential. The ability to step outside of our own experiences Yes. And understand and also be willing to and take the time to understand what someone else is going through, I think is essential for living in the type of collaborative society that we live in and also just being a good person. Yeah. Um, but then 
I also do want to tie it back to the love of nature um, and say, I think, I think it is important that we as humans learn to coexist with nature and with other species who are not humans in a more balanced way. You know, I think we have not been doing that very well in the last few centuries as humans. And I, I think it is essential that we really start to make some changes and shift our mindset from this idea that humanity is the number one at all costs to striving toward a more balanced state, a more balanced coexistence for the health of humanity, of course, and also for the health of the planet and everyone else and everything else living on it. I love that. I think a lot of what I am looking for when I'm picking books to read is something that speaks to me about what's essential, you know? Yeah. And you have created a really beautiful fantasy with really interesting, extraordinary characters and characteristics. But ultimately you are really, you're telling a story about connection and Mm -hmm. and appreciating consequences too right let these things lead to these things lead to these things and that we have to be aware of how our actions are impacting everything around us and yeah yeah exactly i want to thank drew kilman at mcmillan audio and giselle gonzalez at tortine for connecting me with elaine and making this episode on forest born possible You can find out more about Elaine, get a sneak peek at book two called Wild Born on her website. I'll put a link in the show notes. And if you'd like to hear the rest of the Forest Born audiobook, don't forget the Desideratum podcast is an affiliate partner with Libro FM. When you buy your audiobooks from Libro FM, you can also pick a local bookstore to support with every purchase. I'll put our partner link with Libro in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening.